Well, it's so good to see uh, everybody here this morning. It's so good to see so many people, even though it's raining outside. I know that seems like a foreign concept, but it is raining outside. Uh, it's so good to see everybody here. Um, it's especially good to see Adam and Andy here with us, their family, the Greggs. It's so good to see y'all. Miss y'all so much. Anderson waving. Uh, we love y'all. We miss y'all so much. So good to see y'all. Um, to, to prove uh, how much time has really passed since uh, the last time you guys were here, let's just do a little recap. Uh, last time you guys were here, three years ago, I was 17. I uh, just finished my junior year in high school, and I could barely grow any facial hair. <laughs> and so to, to, to show how time has passed, now I'm 20 years old, uh, just got married. Uh, I've been in college for two years now, and I can still barely grow any facial hair. <laughs> just to see how we've both grown over the time, you know, to see the kids getting bigger and, you know, you can, you can tell the change in, in all of us since then. But it's so good to have you guys. Back here, we missed you dearly. To have Mr. Steve and Miss Robin here as well. We love y'all. We're so grateful to see you. If you're just joining us, turn your Bibles to 1 John 2. We'll be in verses 15 through 17. We've been going through 1 John uh, for the past several weeks. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Black Pew Bible. There should be one in front of you that you could turn to page 1211, and you could turn right there to the text, our text this morning. We have been walking through the book of 1 John over the past several weeks, and John, the beloved disciple, uh, he, he's writing this book to Christians in Asia Minor. There's a, a few reasons for that. One reason is that false teachers had arisen from within the church and began to infect the church with a false gospel. And so uh, John uh, is writing this to, to, to reassure these Christians. And, and the particular false gospel at the time was uh, an early form of Gnosticism where these teachers claim to have elevated knowledge, claim that they just had this elevated knowledge that was given to them by God. And these false teachers took all that would listen to them, and they left the church. And so those who had stayed, those who hadn't left the church, they were shaken. And so John wrote this letter, this epistle, to reassure those who were remaining faithful, to fight against the grave threat to the church. The book of 1 John is really pastoral in its mood. It's, it's, it's really written from the heart of a pastor who has concern for his, his people. He, he has concern for his people, his, uh, his sheep. And as a shepherd, John is communicating some very basic but very vitally essential principles to his flock, reassuring them about the basics of the faith. In this book, John has been trying to give assurance to those who may be struggling with their own salvation. But notice John hasn't been giving them a pick-me-up. John hasn't been going to them and saying, no, no, no. He hasn't been going to the one who's struggling with their salvation and saying, no, but remember, you've done some good stuff. He hasn't said that, right? He hasn't said, hey, remember, who, remember who you are. He hasn't said that. He, to reassure them of, his, of them, of their faith, he has been going to them and saying, look to Christ. He's been reassuring them of their faith by pointing to Christ. And there's been a series of tests that John has laid out for the people to know if they have assurance. And you could classify this test as a part of the love test. We're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right into it. Everybody wants to eat, spend time with Adam and Andy, and that's going to be great. We're going to do that. So we're just going to jump right into the text. There's three main points that I think we get from our text today. And the first one uh, is one who loves the world cannot also love 
the Father. Look at verse 15 in your Bible. Jeff read the text for us this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Firstly, I think we need to establish what John means by world here. I think it's important that we establish that first. The Greek word for, for world is used primarily three different ways in the New Testament. Uh, one way that it's, it's used is referred to as planet Earth. And that really wouldn't make sense in this instance. It wouldn't make sense that he's referring to uh, planet Earth. Someone who loves planet Earth cannot also love the Father. That would not make sense, right? So we can dismiss that. Uh, the world is also used to refer to people, as in John 3.16. For God so loved the what? World. Used as for people, right? But that wouldn't make sense he, here either. God wouldn't tell you to, to not love something that he loves. So we can dismiss that. The world here... Uh, really is that which includes all teachings, ideas, cultures, uh, attitudes, and activities opposed to God. That is what the world means here. One commentator said that it's used to refer to organized evil system within its principles and its practices, a fixation on the material over the spiritual, promotion of self over others, pleasure over principle, World, here it means anything that opposes Christ, anything that opposes Christ in his work here on earth. So John says, don't love that. Don't love anything that opposes Christ. Don't love anything that opposes his work. That's what John is, is, is warning his people not to do here. And we see similar language in James 4, 4 that teaches that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. So it's used in a similar way elsewhere in the New Testament. The world, this, this evil system that is put in place, is also under the influence of someone who Peter says in 1 Peter 5 is roaring around like a lion looking for someone to devour. In John 14, 30, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. In John 16, 8 through 11, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his second coming. And he says, when he comes, speaking of him, the Father, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, Satan is the one that Peter was talking about, the ruler of this world. Satan is the one that Jesus was talking about, the ruler of this world. World. And Satan, though he is on a leash and though he has been defeated, is still very powerful and still has very much influence in the world. He's the ruler of this world. That's what Jesus said. I think we need to establish what love means. John says not to love the world, but we know what the world is now. Okay, So I think we need to establish what love means. And I think love is a world or a concept that gets tossed around pretty flippantly, right? Uh, and I think in America, we use it pretty uniquely as well. We love everything, right? We love this. We love that. We love football. We love basketball. We love pizza. We love burgers. We love Chinese food, right? We love uh, our job, hopefully. We love our spouse, but we can't love everything the same. We love hunting. We love art. We love food, 
But we can't love everything the same way, but we use it in the same way. We can't love food the same way that we love our spouses, hopefully. So, what does love really mean? Well, love is essentially a commitment. Love is essentially a commitment for something and a desire for something. So if you love something, you desire it, you commit to it. One thing um, that I, I really enjoy, I'm not going to say love because we just learned what love is. Uh, one thing that I really enjoy, it's terrible, is, is Coke. I'm kind of like a Coke addict, not like a cocaine addict, but like a Coca-Cola addict. I just love it. It's, I don't know, I can't get over it. Me and my sister, we bond over this. Um, it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that we just, we just can't get over. I know it's a terrible thing to, 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 to really be into, but I, I really do. And every, I get cravings, you know. It's like I, I'll do anything to get one. And now you think that's ridiculous, and it is, it is. But the fact is, you would do the same thing to whatever it is that you love. You do pretty much about anything to get it, right? Why? Because you love it. Now, that is ridiculous, and as I'm looking at my mom, I know she can uh, attest to that being ridiculous, but the fact is we would all do the same for whatever it is that we love. Because we love it. Whatever you desire and whatever you're committed to, that is usually where your time and your money go. Is that not right? What you're committed to, what you desire, that's where your time and your money go. If you love hunting, that's probably where your spare time goes. That's probably where your spare money goes. If you love football, that's probably where your spare time and money go, right? Love is more than an emotional feeling. It retires. It requires time and resources. If you love the world as John warned against, then that is where your time and your money will go. Your time and your money will go to worldly things, things that have no value. If you love the world, that is where everything that within you, that's where it will go. Your time and your money will go to worldly things that have no eternal value and lead you down a dark path. And with that being said, John is saying not to love the world. Do not love the world. Do not desire or commit to the world. Do not put money and time towards the world. Do not put your resources and everything within you towards the world. Do not love the world. That is what John is saying here. And it's also interesting, this is the first time John gives an imperative command in this book. It's the first time he says do not. So he's pretty passionate about this subject. Do not love the world. So based on everything that we know uh, about the world and who rules the world, it makes sense that John would tell these Christians in Asia Minor uh, to not love the world. So that makes sense. But there's another reason why Christians should not love the world. Well, Christians should not love the world because their heart should already be taken. They should already be exclusive the object of their affection and their love should already be chosen, should already be uh, committed to, right? Love signifies affection and devotion. And the thing that should have one's devotion and affection is Christ. And if you're a believer, another reason you can't love the world is because you're already loving God. You don't have, any, have anything else to give. 
God, not the world, should have first place in the believer's life. John takes it a step further in saying that not only should people not love the world, but that if they do, the Father, the love of the Father, is not in them. And what John means here is, is, is if, if you love the world, then your love for the Father is not present. In other words, they are mutually exclusive. You can either love the world or you can love God. You cannot do both, right? They are mutually exclusive, one or the other. You can make a right or a left-hand turn, but you cannot make both at the same time. You can roll a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, or a six on a die, but you cannot roll more than one at the same time. You can run or you can walk, but you cannot run and walk at the same time. Jogging doesn't count. You can flip a coin. You can land on heads or tails, but you cannot land on both. You get the point. These are exclusive things. One or the other. You either have the world or you have Christ. You either love the world or you love Christ. There is no in-between. Guys... um, If you're married or engaged, do you remember when you proposed? Uh, Imagine when you proposed, your wife or or your fiancé, they they said to you, yes, I will marry you, I will uh, live with you, I will work beside you, but you need to know that I I love someone else. (laughs) That really wouldn't make sense, right? You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? You'd say, that's ridiculous. And of course, that is ridiculous. Because... I'm the one you're supposed to love. What do you mean you love someone else? We're supposed to be exclusive. Right? That's that's the whole point. We're supposed to be exclusive. Well, I think what happens in the church today is we have a lot of people um, saying, I telling God, I will serve you, I will love you, I will go to church, I will read my Bible, I'll do this, I'll do that. But remember, I'm still I'm still gonna love the world. Well, John is saying, no, you're not. If you're doing that, you're loving the world. It's one or it's the other. That is what is ridiculous. You cannot be in the world system and in God at the same time. MacArthur says, there's no middle area for a true believer. You can't have a part of each. You are in one or the other The world should be able to come to you with all that it offers. It should be able to come to you with its bells and its whistles and say, hey, this is what I got. And you should be able to say, no, I'm taken. I got it. I can do that now. That's cool, right? (laughs) No, I'm taken. I'm already exclusive. My love is for something else. The second point. Uh, today is that all that is in the world is not from the Father. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is impossible. It is impossible to love God and the world at the same time because the world is not compatible with God. You can't love both because they're opposites. You can't love both because they oppose each other. God is everything that is good and just and holy and righteous and pure. 
and lovely. The world is everything that is sinful, lustful, prideful, and unholy. You cannot love both. It's impossible. Don't try. Because of that, it's impossible for any Christian to love God and the world at the same time. To obey one would be to disobey the other. Some things just aren't compatible. Some things just don't go together, right? Some things just don't fit. They don't mesh. They oppose each other, right? I've actually put together um, a few examples of things that uh, don't go together, that oppose each other. <laughs> Toothpaste and orange juice. Man, the, nothing worse than that, right? Not, that just, it doesn't go together. It just doesn't work. It doesn't mesh, right? It can't. You can't make it. You can't make it work. Right? Next one. This guy's outfit. Right? It just doesn't, it's not compatible. It doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't fit. You can't make it work. Next one. This guy. Um, turns out haircuts can be incompatible. No. But... You go to, if you don't know who this is, maybe you go to the next one and you can maybe tell. <laughs> this is my dad, if anybody doesn't know. He's right over here. He was doing the Top Gun look before it was, before, you know, everybody's going crazy. Some things just don't work. Some things just aren't compatible. Some outfits, some haircuts, some styles, right, from back in the day. Sometimes they just don't work. Some things just aren't compatible, right? They just don't fit together. There's nothing that you can do to make them fit, right? There's nothing that you can do. All that is in the world and all that the world has to offer, it may seem attractive for a bit. It may seem appealing, but that's, that is false. That is deception. Anything that the world has that seems attractive, it, 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 it's false. It's its nature is evil, harmful. It has nothing, the world has nothing to offer the Christian who is in right standing with God. There's nothing that the world should be able to offer you that will outshine God. John goes on to list three things that are in the world and that are not of God. The first is the desires of the flesh. Some translations say lust of the flesh. The Greek word for lust here means desire, craving, longing. Really, it boils down to a desire for what is forbidden. Desire for something you should not have. And that's what the lust of the flesh, the desire of the flesh is, things that are forbidden. The desire of the flesh is to do anything or think about anything that God opposes. Flesh means the human nature of man apart from God, the sinful nature of man prone to sin, opposed to God. And so the desire of the flesh is to desire sin, is to desire to oppose God. That's natural for us. That's the desire of the flesh, desire to oppose God, to be in rebellion against him. That's what comes easy. Second thing that John lists is the desire of the eyes. The eyes are the means that Satan uses to bring about wrongful desires within us, right? 
When the eyes see something that the wicked heart wants, a wicked action is never too far behind. You might want to write that down, Chase. That's good. Um, the earliest example in Scripture uh, is Eve. comes in uh, Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 6, after the Lord told Adam and Eve that they may eat from any tree, except from the garden of tree of knowledge of good and evil. The same tree is spoken of in Genesis 3, 6, where it says, So the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, Eve's eyes saw something that her wicked heart wanted. And so, of course, uh, a wicked action followed. She followed through with what she saw and what she wanted. Another example, uh, 1 Samuel 11. You might know this. 1 Samuel 11, 2 through 4, tells us, tells us of another person that was led astray by their eyes. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, It's not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David, man after God's own heart. He saw something that his wicked heart wanted. And a wicked action followed. Your eyes get you in trouble. What you're looking at, is it going to get you in trouble? Should it get you in trouble? David's wicked eye saw something that his wicked heart wanted. What followed was a very wicked act by David. The last of the three is the pride of Life. And the pride of life is shown in a, a lot of different things. The desire for recognition, the desire for applause, for status, the desire to look better than your neighbor, the desire for possessions, material things. The person who struggles with the pride of life always wants to one-up you. You caught a fish that was this big, they caught a fish that was this big, Right? You got, uh, your truck is a 2015, they get a 2016. This person always wants to one-up you. If you have a, dad, if you have a mule, they have a what? They have a racehorse. Mule and racehorse. Anything that we pride ourselves on, that's the pride of life. Self-indulgence, putting yourself before others gratification of self, egotistical arrogance, false views of views of pleasure, false views of superiority. This is the pride of life that we struggle with. There's a correlation between uh, these three categories in the passage that we looked at earlier with Eve. Eve first saw that the tree was good for food. That could be considered the desire of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That could be considered desire of the eyes. Uh, and then saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That could be the pride of life. An example of all three wrapped up in one. Where one is, the other one is usually not too far away. 
all three categories listed by John here in the one of the last books of the Bible show up in the third chapter of the Bible. This loving the world is clearly not just a checklist of things that if you do, you will be considered worldly. If you do, you will be considered someone who loves the world. It's not just refraining from certain events or refraining from certain activities. Loving the world is not a, a checklist. It's not if I do this and if I do this and I don't do that, then I love the world. Loving the world begins with the heart before it begins with anything else. Loving the world ultimately is a heart issue. If you love the world in your heart, your actions will follow. The bottom line is that our relationship to the world must be one of opposition. If you're a Christian, your relationship to the world should not be, buddy, buddy, that should not be where you are the most comfortable. It should not be where uh, you like to be. If you're a Christian, you're a believer in here today, then your relationship with the world should be one of opposition. Should be one of, this is the world, I'm over here, opposing one another. The world is always opposed to the things of Christ. And as believers, we are meant to be all about the things of Christ. That means we must be opposed to the things of the world. That, must, the, that means that the world will be opposed to you if you live for Christ. The world loves its own and hates those who belong to Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus said it would be like. D.L. Moody, and I'm not just quoting him because we have the same last name, but he was a great theologian and a great man of God. Um, and a recent convert to Christianity came up to him. And he said, uh, Mr. Moody, now that I'm converted... Uh, do I have to give up the world? And Moody responded, No, sir, you do not have to give up the world. If you give a ringing testimony for the Son of God, the world will give you up very quickly. <laughs> That's true. They won't want you. If you love God, you're a believer. And if you give a, a ringing testimony for Jesus, if you love Jesus, and you give a testimony for him. The world should give you up. You shouldn't have to give the world up. They shouldn't want you. They shouldn't want you with them. The third point. Uh, the things of the world have temporal value. The things of God have eternal value. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John gives us another reason to not love the world. It's passing away. It's passing by. If I were to get down here and I were to pull out a, a bubble blower and I blow a bubble, it will float for a little bit and then what will happen? It'll pop, right? The bubble will pop. It only lasts a few seconds. Well, that's just the, the way that it was made. Bubbles are made to be temporary. They're not meant to last forever. That'd be kind of weird. It wasn't meant to last forever. It was temporary. It had a very short lifespan. Uh, Charles Dutton, a very famous 
character actor. He spent seven years in prison as a youth um, uh, for manslaughter. And while there, he took an interest in plays and in theater and acting. Uh, and when he got out, he soon made his way to Broadway in big-time productions, and he became very well-known. And after he became very well-known, people wanted to hear from him, and so they interviewed him. And uh, one interview asked us, said, how did you make the remarkable transition from prison to Broadway? And, and Charles Dutton, he replied, most prisoners decorated their cells. I never decorated mine because I wanted to remind myself every day that this cell is temporary. I didn't want to get comfortable or make it seem like it was home. He never regarded his cell as his permanent home. Well, this morning I'm, I'm telling you that if you're in Christ, then this is not your home. This is not your permanent home. This world is, is passing by. The things that the world offers has to pass by. It will pass by. It is temporal, temporary. It will go to waste. It will all turn to dust. To love something that lasts forever is wise. To love something that lasts for a short time is foolish. We would be foolish to decorate ourselves, to act like this home is our last stop act like this world is our last thought. We would be foolish to do that. We would be foolish to decorate ourselves. So be careful with that. Do not live your life as if this is all that there is. Don't live your life as if this is your final destination. It's not. If you're a believer, don't decorate yourself. You will be out one day. This is not all that there is. So my question you Christians today is this, <clears throat> what are you loving? What do you love? What do your time and your money go towards? What do you spend most of your time doing? Where does most of your money go? What do you love? Is it something that's going to pass away? Is it something that's going to turn to dust? That has no eternal value whatsoever? Or is it something that has eternal value? What are you loving? Don't fall in love with the world or all that it has to offer. The hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, I love that hymn. Um, and it's appropriate, I believe, here. Uh, the lyrics say, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So don't look to the world. It has nothing to offer you. It will pass away. Look to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. If you focus on Jesus, if you keep your eyes on him, the things of this world will grow dim. I did not mean to rhyme in the light of his glory and grace. 
Everything that this world has to offer is perishing. It's going away. It will not last. It will not satisfy you. It will go away. But the things that Christ has to offer will never fade. Trophies break. They don't last forever. One commentator writes, uh, the human heart will never relinquish its love affair with the world unless it finds something greater to love than the world. The only way to dis- dispossess the heart of an old love is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to not love the world is to love God. To replace that spot in your heart with The only way your heart will stop its love affair with the world is if it starts one with Jesus. The last phrase gives hope to a believer. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world cannot give hope, cannot give meaning, cannot give comfort, cannot give satisfaction. The only true comfort comes from Christ. There is no worldly comfort in the long run. If you are a believer, you are a believer, you can 100% trust that. Application. What, what are the telltale signs of, of loving the world? I'm going to give you seven of those. First, when the world or any object in it uh, is what you think about, engrosses your thoughts more than anything to do with God, you might be loving the world. Second, when things of the world is what you talk about. What do you talk about with your friends, with your family? Are you only talking about worldly things? Do you ever talk about the things of the Lord? you ever talk about the Bible? you ever just study the Bible just to study it? Not to say that you did, not to prepare for something? Just because? Third, if you're unwilling to part with things from the world, unwilling to give things up, you might be guilty of loving the world. For unwilling to give anything up in order to further God's purposes, we're loving the world. Uh, fourth, if you're discontent with what you have, it could be a sign of loving the world. If we're always obsessed with having the next thing, having more, having something else, having the better whatever, trying to compete with your neighbor, That could be a sign of loving the world. Fifth, if you pursue the things of the world with greater zeal than you do the things of God, might be guilty of loving the world. If you're pursuing that promotion more than you are pursuing Christ, you might be guilty of loving the world. If you're pursuing that degree instead of pursuing Christ, you might be guilty of loving the world. Sixth, if we pride ourselves on earthly distinctions, how people think of us, titles, if you pride yourself on that, we we might be guilty of loving the world there. And seventh, when we seek to acquire or retain its objects in a wrong manner, we are loving the world. If we seek to get something in a way that you should not, we could be guilty of loving the world.
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If you do, John says the love of the Father is not in you. If the love of the Father is not in you, that means you're not a believer. That means you've never repented and trusted Christ. That means you're lost. Remember we said the world and God are opposed to one another where if you're not with God, then you're with the world. And if you're with the world, then you're opposed to God. To be opposed to God is a very scary thing, a very real thing. And it's not where you want to be. So if you're not a believer, repent, trust Christ. Enter into a relationship with Him. You can be against the world. You can be with God. You can oppose the world. You can love the things of the Father that will last forever and will not fade away.